Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. I'm going to make a start then. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence, for your great love uh, for all of us in our... uh, in our particular situations, in our particular ways of being, thank you for your great love uh, for all of us as individuals. Um, thank you that you know us, uh, that you welcome us into your presence, that you um, gave yourself for us, that you are found within each of us, um, very specifically uh, within each of us. Uh, come Holy Spirit, just help us uh, comprehend that, that, that great love. Um, and just help us to experience that more and help us to expect that more and help us to live that out more and live out of that more. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, so hopefully, I'm not going to be too long this morning. I say that every week uh, and uh, I'm clearly a liar. <laughs> I, I have to tell you this though, right? I called, I edited out enough material for about two of the sermons. So I, I was like messaging Steve saying which, which which scriptures should i use please help me so we managed to uh, cut it all down a bit and i've actually gone i've gone for technology today i've got a presentation to go with it so we're, we're carrying on this series of church in the dirt this is part three week three of, of the series um, and i have subtitled this i love mankind It's people I can't stand. And I'm going to come back to that reference in a little bit. Um, But Steve's really articulated this idea of being in the dirt uh, exceptionally well over the last couple of weeks. Um, So much so that I actually managed to delete most of my intro as well. Um, So last week in particular, actually, Steve really pressed home this this Jesus and the church uh, interaction with the dirt. Humanity is formed of the dirt, so the church should be found in the dirt. Uh, With humanity in the midst of people, just like God is. God is found connected with people, in relationship with people. And, you know, we stress that um, a lot when uh, some of the the stuff I was doing from the Old Testament, we were talking about how God is in relationship with people. There's a mutuality there. Um, But he doesn't just stop there being in relationship. He actually takes on personhood. He doesn't just stay removed and relating from the outside, but no, he steps into that dirt and becomes a human, a dirtling, literally. So the name Adam just means dirt, the, the dirt man, the earth man. And, and God steps into that personhood. He steps into the, to being a dirtling as well, most properly to reveal himself. How do we know what God is like? The, the, the sharpest, most, articulate, most well-articulated vision of God is Jesus. So he steps into the dirt of creation and he says, this is exactly what I'm like. If you are at all fuzzy about my character, look at me in the dirt, in the same substance as you. So God becomes a dirtling. And our controlling image uh, for this whole series is the one that uh, Stephen Pat last week, you know, so the, the, the phrase church in the dirt comes from Judah Smith looking at the woman caught in adultery. Where is Jesus? He's in the dirt. He, his hands and fingers are in the dirt of humanity. And whilst the religious leaders are stood looming over, so Jesus is down there in the dirt and the religious leaders are stood looming over with stones in hand, their own particular version of their own dirt, which Jesus also reaches into in a very particular way. Uh, and so Steve kind of unpacked all that last week. 
So what I want to look at today is what it means to be church in the dirt, or more pointedly, the only place the church should be yeah. is in the dirt. Um, and I really want to take aim at how our thinking leads us to become a church that is removed, that can be looking on and condemning, rather than being the church in the dirt of humanity. So I want to look at how we actually think. And perhaps it would be better to say how we unthink, how we don't think, how we just go along with the flow without critically assessing the thought patterns that we've arrived at, the, the way that society has already schooled us in thinking and how we don't think about those things. The dirt is the only place that the church should be found. Uh, can I have the next slide? <coughs> I don't know if you can see that very well. Do people recognise that? Yeah. <coughs> so, the church, if it is not in the dirt, is a bit like Joey in Friends, when he tries to convince people that he's a Porsche owner <laughs> by wearing loads of Porsche paraphernalia. We can be brand Jesus. Yeah. We can sing the songs, we can have the Bible, we can have the, 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 the funky bookmarks, we can shop in Christian book, bookshops, but we can lack any of the real substance. Yes. We can talk the talk, but we can't walk the walk. That is exactly like Joey. It's Porsche! <laughs> so I want to talk about being the church in the dirt. That is the substance of the church. Um, so really what I'm aiming at is the ways that we think about the world, how that shapes how we engage with the world. I want to talk about the abstract ways we think. Now abstract is a word that I'm going to say a lot. Um, and I want to talk about the ways, that, the abstract ways that we think about specific and particular reality um, and, and how that can disconnect us and how that can insulate us. So the ways that we think actually puts a barrier between us between us and other people, between us and creation, just because of the ways we think. And I really want to focus on how Jesus breaks in and interrupts those ways of thinking. So I'm going to take some time to look at abstract thought, um, to look at how we can be Porsche Joey without any substance. And then um, I want to dig into the Bible a little bit, just to, just to see how this works out. Uh, so some of you will have been reading um, this book, uh, which has really, really challenged me. I've read it three or four times now. Uh, it's probably one of the most kind of potent books I've read. Um, but one of the things that he, he brings out, it, kind of about halfway through, is that he riffs on this idea proposed by the great philosopher Charles Schultz uh, in his majestic philosophical treaty, Peanuts. Uh, so the next slide, I have to be very careful how I articulate that as well. <laughs> So this is where the title comes from. So it's Linus and Lucy, and, and she's teasing him about becoming a doctor. And, and, and she says, you can never become a doctor. And do you know why? Because you don't love mankind, that's why. So you can never be a doctor because you don't love mankind. And Linus retorts, I love mankind. It's just people that I cannot stand. And this is the sort of thing that I want to build upon, because this is, this is a classic way of thinking that we have, of thinking in the church especially. This really gets to the heart of what I want to talk about. We can talk about love in its abstraction. Uh, we can talk about love disconnected from any physical outworking of that at all. Um, we can be the church disconnected. We can be brand Jesus. We can be Porsche Joey, but not have any of the substance because of the way we think. Uh, we can do things in abstraction that we can't or won't do in the particular realities of real life. 
And oftentimes, this isn't because we actively refuse to do something. I'm sure I could stand up in any church in this country today and say that we should be loving people. And I'd probably get an amen from all the charismatic Pentecostals, and maybe there might be a stand-up, city-down thing in high Anglican churches, I don't know. Um, But everybody would agree to that. And everybody would say, that's what we're doing. But because it's in the abstract, yes, yes, we should love people, we can kind of get away with feeling like we're doing the thing without actually doing the thing, because of the way we think. You know, we can adopt certain ways of thinking about the world we live. Pointedly, we can talk about loving people or including people, etc. But in reality, it's only certain people that we will actually include or that we will actually be willing to love. There's always those people, whatever those people means, that we, you know, we can't quite get there. And we can have reasons. Oftentimes we build our reasons, our, our doctrines and our dogmas, about why we shouldn't or why we can't. Or why we won't. And to paraphrase Brian Fontana in Anchorman, 50% of the time, it works every time. That's how the love of the church works. You know, it doesn't quite get there. Uh, We hold these ideas in abstraction, like love or any of our dogmatic statements. And they colour the way we see the world, often unthinkingly. Um, A typical version of this is like stereotypes. Stereotypes are a really easy way to get hold of an abstraction. Uh, And we buy into those stereotypes and we propagate them. For example, um, if you're on Facebook at all, you'll see lots of stereotypes being cast around. Brexit leavers, they're all right-wing, they're all racist, and they're all ignorant. All of them. And we'll talk about that lot of people as being racist and ignorant. Or, depending on which which way you swing with it, Remainers. You're all liberal. You're all terrorist sympathisers, and you're all equally ignorant. Therefore, those people must always be a certain kind of people with those qualities all of the time. Those people. Notice, and this is where I'm going to kind of unpack what abstraction actually means, the particularity of people. So we're all different people. We might, by and large, have similar political views or not. But we'd know that if I voted uh, leave, I'd hope that you guys wouldn't say, oh, he's a racist. But once I'm out of this room and you have a conversation about leavers or remainers, whichever way, I would then be assumed into that broader category because I voted a certain way. So what we do is we take the particular and absorb it into a broader category, meaning I don't have to actually engage with the real people I can just engage with that broad category and and, and just push it away. I don't have to connect with that. I don't have to deal with that. And that means that I can brush off 50% of the population without any engagement whatsoever, without any connection. And notice how the disconnection in our thinking, all people that voted a certain way are like this. So that's that's in my thinking leads me to live a certain way because then I don't engage with those people in the natural, in the physical, in the reality. So, uh, next slide. See, this is abstract. Um, so, I'm going to do a little thought experiment with you just to see how, how we can kind of grasp this idea. Poignantly, it's kind of abstract. <coughs> Here is a number. More precisely, it is the number 19. 
it has attributes as a number. It is a prime number, for example. Uh, we recognise that it exists. Anybody dispute that the number 19 exists, right? Number 19 exists. The way we talk about it is, here is a number. I use the word is. You know, that's the present tense, third person, singular version of the verb to be. It exists. Even by our very grammar, that number exists. It is right there. There is a person. More precisely, his name is Luke. Luke has attributes. For example, he's nice. Nice person. Do I get an amen, Liddy? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he sings. He, he does football. We recognise that Luke exists. Here is Luke. Here is a number. I can engage with both of them. I can engage Luke. I can engage with Luke. I'm not engaged to Luke, so don't worry. Um, and I can, gauge, I can engage with a number. So, for example, I could cut 19 in half, and I get two lots of nine and a half. 19 in itself remains undiminished by whatever action I take upon it. If I was to do uh, mathematical sums on that, there would always be number 19. Number 19 always exists. I could add 1 to that and get 20, but 19 would still exist. However, I cannot cut Luke in half without diminishing his reality. I can do things to abstract ideas that are not appropriate to particular reality. Obviously, there are some logical flaws in that argument, um, but it helps to illustrate the point. Because if we live from our abstractions, then that means that I can do certain things to abstractions that are not appropriate to be done to reality. So I can halve that, and 19 is fine. I cannot do the same to Luke. I mean, if I did it in church, there'd probably be all sorts of questions, and a lot of people wouldn't be fine. But the thing is, numbers are abstractions. You can do things in abstraction that are not appropriate to concrete, tangible, which is a word that um, Lydia used quite quite a lot in in her prayer. So things aren't appropriate to the tangible, the physical, the visceral existence. And our massive issue is that we firstly confuse the two. We confuse what is abstract with what is real. And the second thing is that as humanity, we tend towards the abstract. And I'll explain why. So if I can just have the next two slides. Uh, just, um, so, like a really bad wedding speech, this is a dictionary definition of abstract. Um, you don't really have to absorb that information. Uh, Abstract is an adjective, existing in thought or as an idea, but not having any physical or concrete existence. Um, Dealing with ideas rather than events. Uh, So notice that we talk about the physical, but we also talk about something that happens within time. So we're talking about reality, not just just this chair, but this chair existing in time. Okay, So that might be a bit to get our head around, but don't worry, we don't have to understand it to its nth degree. Not based on any particular instance, i.e. theoretical. of a noun denoting an idea, a quality or a state rather than a concrete object. So you get the idea, right? Uh, Can we just have the next one? So this is the etymology of the word. It's Latin. And it just means to draw from. 
Okay, so just to get a real idea of what I'm talking about when I talk about abstraction, it just means to remove something from something, to draw away. So the way we use the word, it, it means to be removed one step or to remove from reality, to take it from reality and elevate it into some other plane. Uh, we take the particular and place it in a bigger category. So I think, Luke, you'd probably get your head around this in terms of data. Like you, you take a particular data and then you group it so you can sort it and manipulate it in certain ways to make sense. It's a disconnection from the particular uh, to bigger categories that we can deal with a bit more easily. Um, by removing the particular into, and the specific into larger and less tangible classes by categorising, grouping, labelling, identifying in larger groups, this actually helps us make sense of the world. There's, there's far too much information out there. There's far too many uh, single instances of things for us as humans to comprehend. So we have to abstract things to actually be able to function in the world. There's just too much out there for us to, to, for us to live and move within without having to make these abstract thinking. Okay, So it's a good thing because it helps us navigate this world in, in a sensible way. But abstraction at its heart, at its core, is a disconnection. It's an insulation from the, the particular realities. Uh, Karl Barth, anybody heard of Karl Barth? Only Okay, well, he, he's probably, he was um, in the, the, the 20th century, and he's probably the greatest theologian that has ever lived. Okay, uh, reformed theologian, uh, most people would, that know of him would actually say that claim is fairly true. But he championed this idea that God is never abstract. One of the things in his massive church dogmatics, uh, uh, volumes of books, is that he pushes that God is never abstract. He's never removed from the particular and the concrete and the tangible. Uh, for God, abstractions about God lead to idolatry of our ideas. If we cannot pin those ideas into some concrete reality, then actually what we do is we just end up worshipping ideas, we end up worshipping words about God and not God himself. God acts and is revealed tangibly in history. Um, so the whole of the Bible testifies to God working in history. There's not, there's not a section of the Bible where it deals just purely in metaphysics. You know, it doesn't come out with God is impassable, immutable, omnipotent, all of these things. That, that, those things never get said in the Bible. What, what gets said in the Bible is God talks to this person. God does this. God acts in this way. God will respond in this way. Most pointedly and most clearly, it's the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the historical, and I don't mean just somebody existing in the past, but active in an unfolding ways. <coughs> Jesus is the tangible reference point for God. The exact radiance, as Hebrews would tell us. God is God in a way that moves away from abstractions towards actuality. This is God's tendency. So man's tendency is to take all the particular, because there's so much of it to make sense of, and we abstract it, we remove it from its specificity, I've got that word out, into bigger categories. So we're always making things simpler, we're always reducing things, we're always removing them from their reality. God is always moving the other way. God moves from the intangible, the abstract, and he moves towards reality, to the very, very specific don't worry if this is really heavy. We're going to get into some scripture and it'll be wonderfully clear, I promise. So, for example, God creates, in Genesis 1, the tangible 
from the intangible. He moves from the abstract idea of a void and he creates all of creation. <clears throat> God, he becomes incarnate. He doesn't just leave um, sort of ideas and thoughts filtered through the people. He actually becomes incarnate. <clears throat> he is not just a philosophy. He's not just ideas. We don't just sit around talking about ideas. We reference everything through, well, Jesus did this. The Holy Spirit is doing this. He didn't leave a political party. He didn't even leave a moral compass. He left an example. <clears throat> you know, so we have his presence, we have his Holy Spirit. So much so, God moves away from the abstract to the particular. So much so that he becomes a dirtling. You know, we've already said this. He takes part in his own creation. He's not removed from it. He is known amongst people. In fact, we could say that God isn't known anywhere else but in his own creation. He does physical, tangible acts. We don't talk about a God who is distant, removed and intangible. We don't just give him praise because we've made up some ideas about him. We give him praise because that is rightly what is his due, because that's the things he has done. If you look at Psalms, it talks about the things that he has done that we praise him for. It's not just, oh, he's wonderful because we infer that from our rational logic that because this exists, therefore God must be like this. No, we say God did this thing. He did this thing, you know, so I'll look at Sarah and be thankful because God did a thing. Yeah. He did something tangible in reality. Yeah. So in case you worry about this, I'm sure it's not going to keep you up at night. I'm not arguing for materialism, as in materialism is the belief that only substantial things matter. I'm not arguing that there is no spiritual realm or spiritual dimension or anything like that. I'm saying the two are deeply, deeply, deeply connected. One can't exist without the other. <clears throat> there is no separation. So I've, I've kind of dealt with the, the, the more abstract thing, ironically. <clears throat> so turn with me now to Acts 9. So I could have um, chosen pretty much any scripture to kind of paint this picture, but I chose the lectionary reading uh, for today because I thought it actually worked quite well. So Acts 9, this is the, this is, um, the transformation of Saul. So I'll just read it out. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come and say, say lay, Come in and say, lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief of priests to bind all who invoke your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings, before people of Israel, and I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptised. After taking some food, he regained his strength. And for several days he was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief of priests? So notice how everything, every single little thing in this text, no matter how mysterious or strange or bewildering, is outworked in the tangible. Everything. Everything is worked out in the physical, the material, the visceral. Everything becomes relational and interactive. There is engagement with the whole being. So the mind, the the will and the emotions. There's a physicality to everything that's going on. Nothing is left abstract. You know, nothing is left just in this realm of ideas about things. Oh, maybe we should have an evangelism programme towards people who persecute the church. Nothing is left there. Everything is made tangible, concrete and physically worked out. I can't emphasise this enough. Places are visited, voices are heard, things are seen, bodies are changed, instructions are carried out and people are involved and engaged. Every little thing. Things move from the abstract to the tangible at all points in that little narrative. And I assure you, you can read any story in the whole Bible pretty much and nothing is left in the realm of ideas. God is no philosophical construct in in this little narrative. God is in the dirt of creation. God is active and moving in the, hist- in the dirt of creation. Church is not just a club based on some dogmatic creedal statements that we all agree about. No, the church is t- a tangible participant in God's actions. It is in the dirt. And this is exampled. So, for Saul, persecution is not, really, is not just merely left as threats and murder in his heart. He goes and does something with that. It isn't just, oh, I don't like those people. They offend my religious sensibilities. I'm going to go do something about it. The dislike and the zeal he has in the abstract becomes concrete action. He goes, he gets, he finds, he binds, he brings. But note how he operates behind abstraction. Those people, the followers of the way, they're not real people to him, they're just followers of the way. They're people that he can treat in abstraction with impunity. So they're not real people. They're not, they're, not, uh, they're not somebody's sister or brother or mother or father or son or daughter. They're just followers of the way. They're a bit like stormtroopers in Star, in, in Star Wars. You know, you can kill them. They're not real people. You just shoot them. You can shoot hundreds of them. You know, we'll cheer you on. The followers of the way. So he can deal with these people. They're not human beings. They're not image bearers of God. No, they're removed and abstracted into the label of followers of the way, who are hateful to, to Saul at this point. As mere labels, Saul is able to bypass and ignore their humanity. He's disconnected from the reality that they are, and instead he can treat them with hatred and cruelty, because they only exist in this abstract category that he has. They're not real people. 
But the thing is, God isn't aloof. God isn't abstract. He takes, he takes action in history. He intercepts Saul, a specific person. It isn't, he doesn't come and intercept the temple hierarchy as an abstract group of people. No, he intercepts a person. <clears throat> and he interrupts the flow of history that's being carried out. The revelation that Saul has isn't an idea. He doesn't suddenly get some theological understanding of how Old Testament texts point to Jesus somehow. The revelation is a person. It's a relationship. And it addresses the actual concrete situation. Namely, the persecution. And Jesus didn't leave persecution as something abstract. He says, you are doing this thing to me. Jesus confronts Saul with the abstract ideas that Saul is carrying out with something very tangible. You are doing this to a person. The intervention has a tangible effect on Saul. It doesn't just adjust his thinking or give him something to ponder. It knocks him off his feet and makes him blind. It physically works out in his own body. God takes action in history and something happens. Ananias' prayer life isn't merely an abstraction. Maybe he wishes it was, but it doesn't remain that way. It has a real outcome. Ananias, to Ananias, being a disciple actually means something. He doesn't just go around saying, I'm, I'm following Jesus. When Jesus confronts him and says, you're going to have to do something really difficult. Are you sure about that? Okay. <laughs> Cheers, God. Why can't you pick somebody else? It's not always comfortable to deal with a God who doesn't just function in the abstract. It's really easy to pontificate over thoughts, but it's really difficult to follow someone. Yeah. That discipleship results in Ananias engaging with Saul. Nothing is left abstract. Everything gets worked out in the real world. And note that the normal flow of things, if this was to continue without interruption... You know, God isn't just taking credit for something that would have happened naturally. Because if God hadn't intervened, like Ananias isn't going to be sat in prayer and then suddenly think, right, I'm going to go to that guy who's locking up and binding up people who are persecuting Christians. No, it takes an interruption in Ananias to go and do that thing. So God changes the flow of reality. Saul, left to his own devices, would have just gone and arrested everybody and thrown him in prison. God interrupts that reality and changes the course of history. From what I've heard about the new Avengers film, there's a lot of that kind of timeline hopping. I think that's quite popular in the comics as well. I don't know anything about that though. <coughs> if God had not intercepted Saul, he would have continued in his course of action. If God had not prompted Ananias, he would have not reached out to Saul. And in this due way, they both view things through abstraction. Saul is that evil guy doing bad things. Ananias is one of those followers of the way. But somehow, God interacting in history means that they become real people to each other. <clears throat> Saul thinks, in abstraction, that he's a champion of God, purging the enemies of God's children. But God shatters that abstraction by grounding the persecution against himself. The God that you think you are worshipping, Saul, you are currently working against. There is no abstraction about that. Your religion is making you do things against what you believe. So stop it. Ananias is safe, doing disciply things, you know, like praying. We all do that, right? We all do prayer. 
But sometimes it happens in abstraction. We don't ground it in reality. We don't expect God to say us, tell us anything, to do anything that, that might be remotely uncomfortable. But God comes crashing in to Ananias' prayer life. To Ananias, Saul isn't a person, but he's just the enemy. <clears throat> but following Jesus means that people are not removed into their abstract labels or categories. There are people who Jesus loves and has forgiven. No matter how heinous they are, we cannot leave them in that category. Oh, they're terrorists. Oh, they're leavers. They're remainers. They're left-wing. They're right-wing. They're Trump followers. They, they, they believe in climate change. They don't believe in climate change. Whatever it is, we can never leave people in those categories. We always have to engage with the real people. And this is how we should be as followers. Our Christianity isn't abstract, but it's found in the dirt of humanity. Following Jesus, the God who became a dirtling just like us. Our faith is not an abstract cognitive assent to certain propositions about a deity and how existence might be organised. No, it's a tangible outworking born of a relationship with Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit and enabled by the giftings of God, which Steve like, really did, did a good job on two weeks ago, about the giftings of God being an outworking of these things. Christ is in the dirt, and the church should be too, if it's to have any real substance. So, in conclusion then, I'm coming into land, as Mike Pilavachi would say, um, turn with me to 1 John, and I'm going to quote from the whole of 1 John. I think I'm kidding. So, 1 John. This is one of the letters I love. This is one of my favourite um, books of the Bible. So, I don't know if you know the background to, to the, the, the pastoral epistles written by John, but basically, what had broken out in early Christianity was this idea of Gnosticism. Okay, so Gnosticism is a certain belief system that started to infiltrate the church. Um, and Gnosticism is a broad abstract label uh, that captured a wide range of uh, misguided beliefs about Jesus and what was going on. Basically, um, the idea was that the physical world uh, was not important. The basic goal was that a divine spirit, Jesus, was sent to free us from our physical existence to liberate us from the, the prison of the material and to become our true selves, to ascend to some higher plane. And all, the only way you could do this was to have the correct knowledge to attain this spiritual realm. Okay? And doesn't that just sound like modern Western evangelicalism? Um, believe the correct things and you'll go to somewhere when you leave your body. Okay? One John is combating that way of thinking. Um, he, he combats this abstract notion of Christianity. So just, just note the language. I'll just read a few passages and then I'll, I'll conclude. So it starts off with this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. So if we were at all fuzzy, 1 John is talking about something tangible in the physical. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared... We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. We're not proclaiming ideas about the by and by. We're, proclaim we're talking about something that we have physically seen and touched and heard. So moving on then uh, to chapter 3, uh, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. So again, love isn't some intangible feeling or something that we talk about uh, with, with lofty ambition. 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. When we talk about love, that means laying your life down. Okay, if, it, if you think you are doing love, if it hasn't involved giving yourself away somehow, then you're not doing love. Okay, this is taking the abstract ideas that we have about love that we put on Hallmark cards, Clinton cards with, bear, with teddy bears and unicorns and whatnot, and actually making it something physical, notable, historical, real. Love is this. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, therefore we should do the same. Nothing fuzzy about that. Okay, carrying on into chapter 4. I love this, from verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born from God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, so that through him we might live. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Skipping down a few verses. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete amongst us, so that we will have confidence on the day in judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus doesn't get more pointed than that does it there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment the one who fears is not made perfect in love we love because he first loved us whoever claims to love god yet hates his brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen they cannot love god whom they have not seen and he has given us this command anyone who loves god must love their brother and sister there is nothing left abstract that is fully and firmly grounded there's no just lofty thinking everything has practice everything is made clear everything is grounded in the definite specific particular reality of Jesus historic existence John does not allow love to become abstracted from life the reality of engaging with specific people. He, gave, he gives a definition to love. It is what Christ demonstrated. It isn't just an idea that Christ told us about. It's something that Christ did. If the church is not found in the dirt of humanity, then it is not really the church. The unction is this then. You, in your particular situations, in your particular dirt, if you will, have been interrupted by love, by Jesus, just like Saul. Whatever path you were on, you've been intercepted by Jesus. You have been changed, and you continue to be changed and challenged by the Spirit of God, reconciling you and and conforming you to the image of Christ. You, in your particularity, are loved. Love has happened to you, in your dirt, regardless of who you are. But you're also called, just like Ananias, to be part of the loving interruption that Jesus does in the lives of others. Just like Ananias, it's not those people, it's particular people in their own particular dirt. You are not given the option of of loving God 50% of the time. 
You know, 50% of the time it works 100% of the time. That is not an option that's laid before you by John. You love God, you show you love God, you demonstrate that you love God, you demonstrate that you felt that love by not engaging with groups of people, categories of people, those people, by engaging with people, by connecting with people. And I'm just going to tell you one last story and then I'm going to finish. Um, You've probably heard this story from me before. Um, I used to work for Open Doors with a guy called Brother Andrew who was known as God Smuggler. Well, he's still known as God Smuggler, in fact. And after he dealt with communism, smuggling barbers into communist Europe, he moved on to Islam. He, now in his, like, 90s, he still goes around places like Afghanistan. He's the vice bishop of Iran. This mad Dutchman is the vice bishop of Iran. He travels with a paddling pool in his, in his luggage to baptise people in Afghanistan, in Iran, heavily, heavily extreme Islamic countries. So I had the great and scary pleasure of basically being his PA, chauffeur, um, administrator for when he visited Soul Survivor a couple of years ago. And... Um, and he was on stage speaking, and Tim Hughes, the darling of Soul Survivor at the time, <laughs> this wonderful, cute, fuzzy-looking worship leader that, like, fifth, you know, 50% of the audience were in love with and the others wanted to be, he was interviewing Brother Andrew, and he said to him, Brother Andrew, how do you deal with terrorists? And, and immediately, Brother Andrew just, like, just got really angry And he turned around to him and said, how dare you call them terrorists? They are just people who haven't yet been reached by the love of Jesus. And that is what I am doing. This is a man who has actually visited training camps for Al-Qaeda. He's walked in and seen them training four, five, six-year-olds how to break down an AK-47 and put it back together again. These are kids being taught how to shoot other people at that age. And he's been in those places. And he says, how dare you abstract those people into a label to give you an excuse not to love them? They're just people that haven't been reached by the love of God. And church, that is our job. No one is out of bounds or off limits to the love of God. They cannot be hidden behind, they voted that way, their orientation is that way, this is where they stand economically, this is where they stand socially. No one is out of bounds. The problem is, is if we allow our thinking and Facebook feeds to dictate, then that's exactly what's going to happen. We're going to be Joey. It's Porsche, but not having any substance. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you interrupt us. Do you intercept us in our ways of thinking whereby we, we, regu- we uh, relegate real people with real lives and real issues in their real dirt just behind abstract categories that mean that we don't have to engage with them. Father, I pray that, um, and it's a risky prayer, Father, but I pray that you make us uncomfortable, that you push us out of our comfort zones because we have been loved. Love has happened to us. Love has stopped us and held us up just like Saul. And now I pray, Father, that we can be like Ananias and be pushed out the door and reach out to those people that we're scared of. Father, I know that's a risky prayer because you answer stuff like that. 
But in Jesus' name, thank you that you've clothed us in love, that your perfect love casts out our fear. That we can see beyond, we can be bold enough and daring enough to see beyond the abstract categories that we so, we so love to make sense of the world. But Father, that we cannot make sense of people in that way. So Father, help us to be the church in the dirt. In Jesus' name, amen.